Welcome to the Cell Culture Dish Podcast, New Advancements in Cell and Gene Therapy, Implementing Precision Medicine. I'm Brandi Sargent, Editor of Cell Culture Dish. Joining me today is Dr. Paul Watton, Chief Executive Officer, Obsidian Therapeutics. Dr. Watton brings significant experience spanning scientific research, product development, and corporate growth gained over a 30-year career. Most recently, he served as the founding president and CEO of Siglion Therapeutics. He also serves on the board of directors of several pharmaceutical companies and was named the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2014. I wanted to start out today by asking about the origin of the name Obsidian. Where does the name come from? So the Name is derived from a volcanic rock, uh, obsidian, which um, is found across the world. And um, the point of it really is the name for the company is that we're bringing precision to uh, cell and gene therapies in terms of allowing cell and gene therapies to be controlled um, in a way that hasn't been done before. And obsidian is a rock that's used to make the most precise scalpels used in surgery, so it reflects the precision. Um, and the second thing, which I think is really nice, is as a company, um, we have now over 50 people at Obsidian, and we come from everywhere in the world, uh, just like Obsidian Rock. So you'll find Obsidian in uh, volcanic uh, lava flows uh, across the world on all five continents, so it reflects our diversity as much as anything else. That's a great uh, great reason to choose that name. I think that's that's really unique. I wanted to move on and ask why and how did you begin? Um, I'm wondering, you know, kind of what your personal story is and what inspired you or motivated you to move into the cancer space. Brandy, I've been involved with um, a number of cell therapy companies. I think that cell and gene therapies are a extremely important technology for the future, and it does represent the future of medicine. And my first exposure to this was with a company um, called Ocarta, which was working on back of the eye disorders, which was actually purchased by Astellas a few years ago. And they're building a, um, a development machine here in Massachusetts to develop both cell and gene therapies. And through that, I started a, a company with flagship pioneering um, here in Cambridge based on work that had been done in the labs at MIT by Bob Langer and Dan Anderson. Um, and we'd identified there that there was an opportunity to improve cell and gene therapies, but particularly cell therapies, by allowing us to put implants into the body, which would actually consist of cells that were hidden from the immune system, but they could produce replacement proteins for um, diseases like enzyme replacement, uh, type 1 diabetes, or things like hemophilia. And during the course of actually uh, growing that company, um, my wife ended up being treated for cancer and going through chemotherapy. And um, I was lucky that we were able to transition the leadership of that company to Ruggiero Vivaldi, um, who took over just over 15 months ago. And then Obsidian approached me about the start of this year and uh, asked me if I was interested in working here. And I thought a couple of things was firstly, the prime sort of targets as a result of a deal they've done with Celgene slash BMS was in oncology. And I'm very interested in, in oncology as a field now. And um, secondly, the technology platform itself was extremely relevant to where 
um, this type of therapy is going in the future. And during the course of my work over the past five or six years, the missing link in uh, both cell and gene therapy has been the ability to control cytokine activity um, and be able to have gene and cell therapies modulated in the same way that you see with a typical small molecule drug, where if you change the dose of that drug, um, you get greater effect. And what we're now able to do is to make both cell and gene therapies responsive to changing the dose of a small molecule drug so you can modulate them and regulate them in the body. Yeah, well, I think that's really powerful. I mean, of course, when something like that touches you personally and you're in a in the healthcare industry, then it, I would completely understand why that would motivate you to want to learn more and want to pursue that area. It becomes like a passion even to get more involved. So um, I think that's something that's powerful that that happens to people. Um, and really, a lot of times yeah. when you look into people's stories, you find you know, there's some impetus to move them forward in a particular area and really drive them to want to succeed in a, in an area and that comes from a personal experience. Uh, no, actually, I think you're right. The treatment that we give patients today, for example, in uh, oncology settings is uh, quite, I'm going to use the word crude in some respects. It's uh, some of the medications used were being used 50 or 60 years ago. Um, and when you look at the success that cell therapies have had in the treatment of um, some forms of cancer with the CAR T therapies, for example, the um, the outcome in some patients, and these are the sickest patients um, who've been through other therapies and failed those, but what you see is in many patients a complete response, which um, to me means that if we can start to begin to make this um, type of therapy more accessible and used in a wider setting, that at some point, hopefully in my lifetime, cell therapies will become the mainstay of treatment rather than the last point of call um, during that treatment curve. Yes, I think that's very accurate. And I think, you know, it is kind of amazing when you say about therapies today that there definitely does seem to be a crude element to it just because of, of like you said, it's the same thing we've been using um, and, and it's time for some innovation there, I think. And, and we're starting to see that with mm -hmm. CAR-T and, and some of the, the cell and gene therapy solutions. That kind of leads yeah. perfectly into my next question, which was I wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about how cancer therapy has evolved in the last decades. And then if you can elaborate a little bit on what we've touched on in terms of what are some of the most recent um, advancements in the space. Yeah, so I think that the um, probably in the last, decade or so, the, the main advance has been the impact of uh, what's called immune oncology approaches, which um, use the body's own immune system and empower that to fight uh, tumors. And we've seen the success of the checkpoint inhibitors or PD-1 inhibitors, for example, um, which have revolutionized the way that uh, some cancers are treated. I just read an article last week, I think it was actually on the BBC, where melanoma patients, for example, are now surviving well beyond five years. And 15 or 20 years ago, that was an outcome that definitely wasn't expected. And it's because of the success of these checkpoint inhibitors that we're seeing this change in the treatment of certain cancers and the success of the treatment of certain cancers. So, it's this immune oncology space, I think, which has been the most significant development. Um, and then 
of course, we're now seeing the successes of the uh, the CAR T therapies as well. And I actually believe we're just at the start of this revolution, so there's still a long way to go. But for me, at least, it's the the last 10 years and the impact of immune oncology that's probably the biggest thing. Yeah, it's quite astounding, um, some of the results that um, they're seeing in that space. Mm. What are some of the current limitations of cell and gene therapies? We've talked about the promise a little bit, but what are some of the limitations that we still have that we're still working through in in your mind? Well, I think that um, today, for example, one of the limitations is that most of the the cell therapies used to treat uh, patients with cancer, they are what's known as autologous, which means that you're using the patient's own cells, taking them out, um, engineering them, and then giving them back to the patient once they've been um, purified, like the the CAR-T, for example, therapies do use a patient's own cells. And uh, what we're starting to see now is because of the expense of actually being able to process those cells and manufacture them before you give them back to the patient, there's a couple of things. First is it takes a while for that to occur. So the patient can be waiting weeks before they're given the therapies. And secondly, um, autologous cell therapies are uh, expensive to to make. And um, I think one of the things that could happen in the future is we start to see a shift towards off-the-shelf therapies, and uh, those will be more accessible and probably more affordable for healthcare systems. So I think that's one um, limitation uh, is is just the sort of price point of these therapies. Um, And the second thing has been something we've been focused on here at Obsidian, which is how can we actually make them more controllable and um, make them improve uh, their own performance, these are the CAR T's, but also any cells type of cell therapy, uh, by giving the, the cells a sort of more robust appearance or allowing them to persist longer um, or being able to survive much longer within the tumor microenvironment. And um, we can do that here at Obsidian by applying our technology to control cytokine um, activity within cells that are, are used to uh, treat cancer using immune oncology type approaches. That's great. I, I'd love to hear more. Um, could you describe your platform and then how it can be applied specifically um, to do what we're talking about in terms of the improving the cell and gene therapy? Yeah, sure. So the platform here was um, actually developed uh, initially by Professor Tom Wandless, uh, who's based at Stanford uh, University. And um, Tom had uh, been able to create a technology platform where you could control cytokine activity using uh, commercially available small molecule drugs. And the way he was able to do this was to um, basically genetically engineer a cell to produce a fusion protein like a cytokine. I'll use IL-2 as an example, interleukin-2. And then what he could do was create a fusion protein where that was tagged with what we call a drug-responsive domain. And so that drug-responsive domain-based fusion protein is manufactured all the time by the cell as a result of this genetic engineering. And it's actually randomly structured so the proteins um, are in a sort of random folding uh, appearance. And the cell recognizes those as being misfolded and takes them off to the proteasome or the trash can in the cell. And so those cytokines are not active. 
But when um, that fusion protein is exposed to a small molecule, the drug-responsive domain folds properly in the presence of a small molecule, and then the cytokine can be used by the cell for its normal purposes. And as soon as that drug molecule starts to disappear from the, from the circulation, then the protein uh, starts to uh, go back into its natural state, which is to be taken off to the, the trash can. So, so long as the drug is there, we can rescue the uh, unfolded proteins, if you will, and turn them into active proteins. And when the drug is gone, it goes back to its resting state, which is normally off. And um, because of that, we can control the time course of the action of the protein. And we can also control the level because it does change depending on how much drug you put into the systemic circulation. So it's really controlling cell activity or protein activity by administering a small molecule drug. And it's the first time that anyone has done this, particularly with um, commonly available small molecule drugs that have been widely used in therapy for decades. So they're very safe. Um, the lead drug we actually have right now is called acetazolamide, which is a very old diuretic drug um, with a very big dosing range. So it's actually perfect for what we're trying to do. Um, and uh, we've seen that we've been able to control numerous cytokines and numerous different cell types using this particular drug and uh, in combination with the drug responsive domain. Oh, that's really interesting. What a um, unique approach. I wanted to kind of dig into that a little bit. What differentiates the platform from other comparable companies in the space? That's that's actually a very good question because other companies have tried to turn on and off protein activity, but those approaches have generally been an all or nothing approach. It turns on and then you have to sort of turn it off. I think the big difference with us is that we can not only just turn the protein activity on, but we can also, it's like, more like a dimmer switch than an on-off switch that is the best way to think about our technology because we can modulate that protein activity or cytokine activity up and down on a scale of, say, 1 to 10, um, and it's dose-responsive to the small molecule. So I think that's really the level of precision now that we can apply to both cell and gene therapies is very similar to traditional um, dose response type pharmacology with uh, older drugs that um, have been used in the clinic for a long time. You know, I know we've talked a lot about kind of the cancer therapeutics and the approach to um, cancer therapy, but I wanted to find out a little bit about uh, how your platform could be used for other, you know, cell and gene therapy applications. Are there other indications that you're looking at and, and how can that be applied? Yes. So, for example, um, we make right now the application I just described prior was to be able to modulate cytokine activity by within a cell by tagging it with these drug-responsive domains. We can also tag um, transcription factors with this type of technology, which then allows you to control um, secreted protein output from a cell. Um, which takes us then into being able to modulate gene therapy. So that's actually quite an interesting area for us is to apply this technology to um, providing more precise dose control with, with gene therapy, um, which is actually one of the biggest challenges faced with that type of technology. And um, we can also see it being applied to, for example, 
uh, disorders at the back of the eye where you could um, apply this technology to RPE cells to manufacture growth factors and things like that, um, which could potentially be applied to patients with uh, macular degeneration in the future, where you can control the amount of growth factor being produced um, at will. So you wouldn't necessarily have it being expressed all the time, but you might just want to give a patient a tablet and they can use it, say, once a week, and then you get that protein expressed once a week, so at weekends, so that the, the cells aren't always exposed to, to growth factors. Um, and one of the reasons that that regulation is important in all of the applications we're talking about is because if you continually expose um, cells to things like IL-2 or IL-15 cytokines, which actually are used in oncology ses uh, settings, then the, um, the the cells themselves start to wear out with continual exposure to those growth factors. So actually being able to give them intermittently allows you to get not just better control, but also the cells over the longer term uh, develop more robustness and are more sensitive and uh, more active within um, within the site of action that they're intended for. So. I think that we can see numerous applications. So I can see this technology eventually being used in things like autoimmune disorders, macular degeneration and eye disorders, um, gene therapies. We can see them being used in things like replacement therapy, which could be uh, enzyme replacement or um, hemophilia, for example, in the future. Um, the list is very, very long. And so for our first, our first try at this, we're focusing on oncology where um, the use of cell therapeutics to treat patients with tumors has been tremendously successful with a lot of good clinical outcomes, and uh, we believe that we can make those better. That really sounds great. I wanted to see if uh, you could share a specific example of a current therapy that you could that could benefit from this approach. You touched on it a little bit in the last answer, but is, is there one that you kind of have in mind that would be really sort of a, a perfect fit for this? Actually. Um, this is breaking news. So you've actually asked me the question on the right day. <laughs> so we're meeting with some Wall Street analysts after this uh, this discussion we're having, Brandy. But we've identified that for our first um, clinical programs, we're going to be looking at um, what are known as tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, which um, is a technology that's been used to treat patients with things like head and neck cancer and melanoma. Um, and this is where they take a patient's own lymphocytes from within a tumor and then grow them up and then give them back to the patients. And these lymphocytes are already trained to attack the tumor. What you do basically is just process them to give them back to the patient in much greater numbers. So they can actually do a, a better job. And um, to use the patient's own T cells, um, they recognize the tumor already because they're already there and they've, they've identified the necessary antigens. And clinically, they've had great success in um, diseases like melanoma and head and neck cancer. And so um, what we believe is we can make those cells more robust um, for use in patients by giving them their own um, cytokine that they can produce on demand by giving um, a patient a small molecule. And one example of why we think we can make this better is today, if you go into a clinic and you have to be treated with this TIL therapy, um, first of all, the manufacturing process can take weeks to complete before you actually give it back to the patient. But secondly, um, patients in this setting, um, once the cells have been given back to them, they're required to be put on what's known as interleukin-2, 
therapy. It's high-dose interleukin-2. And um, that therapy um, is quite challenging to work with because it does have a number of side effects. And um, there's relatively few number of sites in this country that um, are able to administer IL-2 to cancer patients because they need to have support uh, rooms necessary just in case there's a, a problem with the therapy. Um, but we believe, for example, that we could eliminate or reduce the need for that IL-2 dosing um, by giving the cells their own source of that cytokine or a similar cytokine, which means that the patient doesn't have any systemic exposure to that cytokine. It's just the cells that need it that actually have um, the cytokine present, and they can go to work on their own. Um, without needing to sort of give the patient additional doses of cytokines to keep those cells alive for longer. So we can actually eliminate that. If we can do that, we can, for example, make the treatment more accessible because you can treat the patients at more clinics that don't need that sort of IL-2 support uh, necessary sort of um, for treating patients. Um, we can actually remove that piece of the equation and actually make it a much better therapy for those patients. And at the same time, by providing those cells with their own power pack that we can actually sort of um, fire up on demand with these small molecules. Uh, the one we're actually going to be using will be the acetazolamide one. Um, we can also make those cells more robust and persistent at the tumor sites. We expect they'll be more active at the tumor site as well. So they'll be better at killing tumors. And secondly, they won't need that cytokine support, which some patients have difficulty um, managing. In fact, about 30 to 40 patients, 30, 40% of patients who um, would normally be eligible for TIL therapies can't go into that because of the, the need for cytokine supplementation. Wow, well, I picked the right day to ask that question. That's great. What wonderful, <laughs> what wonderful news. Um, that's really interesting and look forward to reading more about that as that progresses. Um, to kind of follow along um, or get back to kind of the cancer piece that we were talking about, I'm wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit broadly about what role you see for precision medicine in cancer care overall. Well, I think it's, um, it's something that is going to be for the future. And um, we've already seen the success of the CAR-Ts. I just talked about the TIL. Uh, therapy approach that we're looking at here. Um, there are other cell types, for example, what are known as natural killer cells, where if you were to be able to um, help them persist and grow uh, in the body and control that uh, persistence with uh, there's a cytokine known as IL-15, which we actually are working on near Obsidian, and we can control that activity of IL-15. So, for example, we can now control the um, activity of natural killer cells and improve that for patients. And um, I can see that we're going to sort of broaden the number of cell types that we can use to treat uh, patients with some tumors. And I think you're just going to see a broadening of the patients that become eligible for cell therapy treatment because of precision medicine. But also you're going to see a broadening in the types of cells that can be used to um, to treat these patients, which gives you more accessibility. And I think ultimately uh, making this sort of medication more accessible for patients is a goal that we want to achieve. I think that sounds great. What is next for Obsidian near term? And then you talked about obviously this, this um, your big announcement and uh, what's going on today, but 
what else is kind of on the horizon? What other indications are you looking at? What's kind of coming up for the company? So that's a good question. Um, one of the nice things about a platform like this is it, it knows no bounds, really. So we've got a lot of opportunity to choose uh, diseases where we believe that um, regulating cell and gene therapies can make a difference. Um, you know, you can look at things like autoimmune disorders. You can look at ophthalmology. Uh, we can look at other cancers apart from the ones that we're looking at right now. Um, so I, I can see that there's quite a broad number of disease states that we can um, we can target. The way to think about our technology is if there's a protein that you can make, we can regulate it. Um, and we can also regulate it in any cell type, whether it's the patient's own cells or, as I described earlier, an off-the-shelf um, cell type. So we have a very broad platform in terms of applicability. We're actually triaging that sort of opportunity set right now to identify programs for our own internal pipeline. So I think you'll see more announcements about what we're doing with our own internal pipeline. The second thing is, is we are in discussions with uh, numerous other companies in the cell and gene therapy space about trying to apply their tech, our technology to their technology and vice versa, actually. Um, so I expect that we'll be doing selective partnerships as we move forward because we do want to focus on what's important for our own pipeline as much as possible. Um, we're making great progress with our cell gene slash BMS alliance right now, so I expect you'll see some um, milestone updates on, on that as we move forward. And then a company like ours does require financing, so we expect to be doing another financing in the next 12 months or so. Uh, prior to taking this company out to uh, probably the public markets within about two to three years. And our goal here at the company, which you set internally, is to be in the clinic with this technology by 2022. So that's literally just over two years away. So we're very focused now on taking this technology into the clinic. That's a lot to look forward to and also a um, great goal to have and, and wish you the best in that. Where will your company be in five years? And, you know, kind of, is there a specific strategy that you're taking uh, moving forward? I know you talked about, obviously, there's so many opportunities with this platform. Is there anything, you know, kind of specific that um, you'll be kind of utilizing in terms of a strategy to, to manage all that? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I'm a huge believer in strategic planning. So we've got the management team working on that right now. Um, the uh, opportunity that we have uh, in five years' time, I think, will include um, having a commercial product on the market to treat patients with um, with cancer. So this is the, the program that could be going into the clinic within about two years' time, within five years' time, should be at the point where it could be um, used to treat patients in a commercial setting. So we have to start thinking about how we're going to do that. Um, we're going to be broadening our pipeline, that's for sure. Um, I think we'll have multiple partnerships in place uh, in this country and potentially other countries as well. And um, we should probably be a publicly traded company at that point in time. Um, the companies I like to look at as sort of role models for a company like Obsidian, where they have a really strong platform play, but have also developed products uh, include companies like Al Nylam, which is a local company here. It's quite famous. It's an RNAi company, and we've actually just picked up uh, our head of human resources 
uh, came to us from Allen Island. So we're going to build a team that's able to hopefully replicate their success uh, in the next few years. I really appreciate your time today. This was really interesting. And thanks so much for sharing your story and Obsidian's story. I'd just like to close by asking if there's anything else that you'd like to add for our listeners before we say goodbye. Well, yes, so thanks, Brian. So one thing I would say is that you know, business for me is all about people. Um, they are the currency of life. And uh, we've built a really strong team here at Obsidian. We've had a lot of new team members join us in the past few months. And everyone's really energized and working very hard to uh, bring this um, technology into the clinical setting as quickly as possible. I think we have an obligation to do that. We've assembled a team here that's really moving very quickly now and working very hard to make that happen. Um, and the second thing is, is that, you know, these ventures like this require um, somebody with a willingness to place a bet on this type of platform. And um, our VCs have been fantastic and very supportive. Atlas have been tremendous. We have Google Ventures in the company, Amgen, Takeda, Vertex, I mean, and others. But it's actually really nice to have a very high-level support, not just from the VCs, but also from our board as well, who are working hard to make this. So uh, it's really just about thanking all the people that helped put this into place. Um, and the team here at Obsidian as well that were here before I joined, um, who were able to develop this platform to a point where we were ready to pull the trigger on identifying uh, lead candidates and development programs. And some of those guys have been here for nearly four years, and uh, now they're seeing the, the dream turn into reality, which is just tremendous. But it all came about because of hard work. That's so exciting to be able to see all your hard work come to fruition. And I'm sure for those folks, it's just really thrilling. And I couldn't agree more that it's all about the people. So I think that's great. Um, thank you so much again for your time today. I really appreciate it and look forward to keeping up on Obsidian and, and following what you're you're working on um, moving forward. Thanks, Brandy, and uh, good luck. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Cell Culture Dish podcast. To learn more about this and other stem cell and biomanufacturing related topics, please visit us at www.cellculturedish.com or for downstream biomanufacturing topics, www.downstreamcolumn.com.